and welcome to American Free Thought. I'm John Snyder. And I'm David Driscoll. This is show number 215. We interview Bill Reel, a practicing Mormon and defender of the faith. He's the host of the Mormon Discussion Podcast. How's it going? Hey, it is going. Even though I tell you, I got a little annoyed. I watched John Stewart, The Daily Show, which is a show that you know, both of us just love. Mm-hmm. And he's usually on our side. <laughs> but last night's show, he put one of my friends. I don't know if you've actually ever met Dan Barker from the Freedom from Religion Foundation or not. Uh, yeah, I've met him. Okay. Well, I've met him and I've even had dinner with him, mm-hmm. um, you know, know him fairly well and worked with him on the, the billboard project and things like that. And they put him on the show in one of those kind of uh, interviews where you try to make people look stupid. Oh, yeah. And boy, they really tried to make him look stupid, even though I thought he did a great job defending himself and not saying anything stupid. But you know how you can edit those and just make make them look ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And I was so annoyed. <laughs> I um, I mean, I tell you that this this is like the one show on TV that really kind of defends secularists and doesn't throw the God stuff in your face all the time and even makes fun of God stuff all the time. And then for them to make fun of, of the Freedom from Religion Foundation, literally calling him a dick and an asshole, yeah. was it really annoyed me. Yeah. So I haven't seen it. Have to uh, watch it. Uh, yeah. We usually watch um, Jon Stewart the next day because he, he comes on basically after my bedtime <laughs> right yeah because i'm old eat. and uh right. so um i haven't watched it uh you know normally we would sit down to watch it tonight but uh, anyway so you think they made him look bad well i think he did a pretty good job of defending himself but they still the whole premise was ridiculous um and i watched it uh, on dvr too i watched it just about an hour actually before we came up to record and it was about a, a restaurant that gives a 15% discount if you pray before you eat. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Freedom from Religion Foundation sent a letter saying, you know, hey, this isn't right. And they just made they just made him look – they tried. I thought he did good, but they tried to make him look stupid. Like, why are you bothering these people? What's the big deal? Why are you being such a dick? And uh, it's it's that, that is important. If if I can, you know, and, and so then he goes into the restaurant, not Dan, but the the Daily Show guy, goes in and says, so if I just close my eyes like this, will you give me a fifteen percent discount? And the owner said, yes, of course. So he goes back to, and says, well, she told me that all I have to do is this. Yeah, that's not the point. Yeah, it's it's just oh, it's infuriating <laughs> when somebody you think is on your side does the opposite. And ah. Uh, well, it just I'll, added to my beautiful day that I've had so yeah, far. Yeah, I'll definitely uh, watch it. Yeah, please do. So the first thing that we wanted to talk about before we get our guest on was I wanted to introduce you to a lady named uh, Jessica Steinhauser. This is Jessica Steinhauser's bio from the Source of All Knowledge Wikipedia. Okay. Jessica Steinhauser was born in New York City to a Japanese father and a German mother. She was the eldest of four siblings. She was raised in Little Silver, New Jersey. She attended Little Silver School District and the Red Bank Regional High School. She studied piano as a child and performed at Carnegie Hall twice before she was 15. At the age of 16, she taught English at Suruga College in Suruga, Fukui, Suruga, Fukui, Japan. She was awarded a full academic scholarship to Rutgers University, where she majored in Japanese and business, and she's a member of Mensa with an IQ of 156. Now, while she was in college, Jessica changed her name to Asia Carrera, and she became an adult film actor. Her adult film career ran from 1993 to 2003 and included over 400 films and video features. That's a lot. Wow. She was also in the 2010 documentary called After Porn Ends, which is about life after being a porn actor. And I actually watched that this weekend for research purposes only, of course, but it wasn't a, uh, it wasn't really sexy at all. It was, it was just talking about, uh, uh, porn actors and actresses mm-hmm. who had after what happened after porn. Some of them were, were all for it still and said it did them fine. And of course others were protesting against it. So it's actually kind of an interesting film if you want to see it. Huh. It's called okay. After Porn Ends. And just to add this on in 2011, right after she retired, Complex Magazine, which I've never heard of, ranked her at number five in their list of the top 50 hottest Asian porn stars of all time. 
So, so why did I want to introduce you to Jessica slash Asia? Because the Wikipedia entry ends with, in November of 2014, Carrera, an atheist, wore a colander on her head for her Utah driver's license photograph in honor of the flying spaghetti monster. Okay. (laughs) So I just love that. I thought that was great that she uh, would do that. And this uh, article is sent to us from listener Wendy Hess, and it's from the Associated Press. Now I'll just read through a little bit of this here. A retired adult film star in the heavily Mormon Utah has become the fourth person in the United States to be granted permission to have her driver's license photo taken while wearing a colander on her head as a religious statement. Asia Lemon, whose legal name appears on her driver's license as Jessica Steinhauser, said the pasta strainer represents her beliefs in the satirical church of the flying spaghetti monster. The Flying Spaghetti Movement, also known as Pastafarianism, started in 2005 as a protest against teaching intelligent design as an alternative to evolution in Kansas schools. When she had the photo taken in September, Ms. Lemon said she was not sure if officials at the Division of Motor Vehicles office in Hurricane would allow her to wear the headgear. But it was surprisingly really, really easy, she said. (laughs) Nanette Rolfe who is the director of the Utah Driver's License Division, said about a dozen Pastafarians have had their state driver's license photos taken with a similar colander or pasta strainer on their heads in recent years. As long as we can get a visual of the face, we're fine if they choose to wear the headgear, she said. Hats and headgear are not allowed for driver's license photos unless they're religious garments. After the first few Pastafarians came in, about two years ago, state officials determined the church is a recognized religion and its members do not require any special paperwork. (laughs) And then, I'm a really proud, outspoken atheist, Asia said. I'm proud of Utah for allowing freedom of all religions in what is considered by many to be a one-religion state. (laughs) That's interesting. Uh, You said her her name is Asia Lemon, so I guess she was... um Married. In fact, she I think was. her husband died in a he car did, accident yeah. or something. He did. Her husband uh, actually died in a car accident, so she she kind of kept her name Asia Lemon. Mm-hmm. Um, Asia Carrera was her porn name, and her real name is, is uh, Jessica Steinhauser. Right, very Asian name of Jessica Steinhauser. Yeah, it's, yes. it's interesting <laughs> that you said uh, that the state officials determined that the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster is a recognized religion. I know. I thought I'm, was I, you know, I'm thinking, but there is no like 501c3 of the Church of Flying Spaghetti Monsters, so far as I know. No, as far as I know. Uh, so is this just one of those things where they've just decided it's not worth? It's not worth uh, fighting over. Right. And I also thought the other contradiction in the story that was funny was it said that she became the fourth person in the U.S. to have her picture taken uh-huh. with under on her head but then just in utah this lady here said about a dozen have come in in the last four or five years so right <laughs> so i don't think we have all the facts but i thought it was an interesting story yeah it's interesting um of course i think we've talked about this on the show before that my um license plate says holy fsm mm-hmm. so um However, I'm not going to get a colander on my head for my for my uh, driver's license photo. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'll pass on that too. But I think that's fantastic that she she uh, stood up and made the statement. Mm-hmm. Very cool. So our interview today is with Bill Real. He has a podcast called the Mormon Discussion Podcast, which you can find at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. And it was a, it was a really interesting conversation. We don't get too many true believers on here. Uh, especially uh, believers who really want to d- defend their faith, and uh, Bill certainly did, and I think we did it in a, a very professional and semi-confrontational way, but not not too bad at all. Hello, Bill, and welcome to the podcast. How are you guys doing? Hey, we are doing pretty good, and I, I really want to thank you for coming on the show. We've had so few uh, true believers on our show that it, that it's nice. Normally, we have uh, we've had several ex Mormons, for example, who have written books about being Mormons and and kind of their coming around and coming away from the church. So it's great that we're going to be able to get somebody who is is a current practicing Mormon. And your conversion story is really interesting. I've heard you talk about it on other shows. Can, can you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you came to be a Mormon? Absolutely. So first off, thank you for letting me uh, to be on today. And maybe i got to go back to probably the age of 17 and maybe even preface kind of before that by saying that uh, I didn't grow up with a belief in God. 
my my dad's always kind of believed in a supreme being, but we've never gone to church. He's never really said more than than the idea that God is important in society. I've been to church for weddings and funerals, and that was about the extent of it. My mom was a Baptist growing up, but sometime around the age of 15 or 16, she ended up in some foster homes and, and had kind of a rougher childhood and ended up just kind of ceasing her attendance at church and her participation with the religious community. So I grew up in a home that had a Bible downstairs, but my family never opened it up. We never went to church. And I remember in high school, uh, I was working at a restaurant and I was making pretty good money and I ended up uh, finding a second job. I just felt inclined to do that for whatever reason. And at the second job, there was a young lady that worked there and she uh, began flirting with me and eventually she asked me out on a date. I was too afraid of rejection to ask her, so she asked me. <laughs> and uh, and so we went on a date and found out that she was a, a member of the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, a Mormon. And it didn't take long. She invited me to go to church with her and, and so I did that. Uh, before long, if you know a little bit of the LDS storyline, it doesn't take long for you to show any interest at all before two people with tags on their shirts will uh, will somehow seem magnetically attracted uh, to you. And so two missionaries uh, begin teaching me the missionary discussions. And as they were teaching, I, I took the admonition to read the Book of Mormon. And whereas I think probably 95% of the people who join the LDS church probably read less than 10 chapters of the book before the missionaries get a commitment out of them to join. I was hesitant. I wanted to read the whole thing. And so I spent quite a bit of time as a senior in high school going through the Book of Mormon, reading it from essentially from the beginning to the end. And as I'm taking the discussions with the missionaries, everything is sounding really good. And as I'm making my way through the Book of Mormon, it, uh, it really strikes me as something that that spiritually spoke to me. And I wanted to know more about the Mormons, and I wanted to know more about Joseph Smith. And so I thought, well, okay, I'll go to my, uh, my local school library. And there wasn't a whole lot of material there. So I ended up making my way to the public library in our city. I live in Sandusky, Ohio, uh, pretty much smack dab between Toledo and Cleveland. And I went to the public library there, found a biography on the prophet Joseph Smith, except not really knowing this at the time, it was written by a lady by the name of Fawn Brody, who is the niece of one of the leaders in our church in the past, but she also happens to to have lost belief in the biography as a critical examination of uh, Joseph Smith's life. And as I read through that book, it just absolutely shot down everything the missionaries were teaching me. It, it was kind of the counter-argument to the truthfulness of the gospel as the missionaries posed it. So, kind of looking at these two various sources, the missionaries and what they're teaching, as well as this book, and realizing they're two far ends of the spectrum, I decided that, uh, as the missionaries were saying, the only way to kind of come to a real answer was to to do what the end of the book said, which was to, to pray about it. And, and I did that, and the experience I had with that prayer... It was different. I think a lot of Mormons rely on a, a fuzzy feeling or a burning of the bosom, as they'll call it. Uh, the scriptures sometimes talk about the fruits of the Spirit. And for me, it was a much different experience. I, uh, I, I became very aware that at least the central message of what the missionaries were teaching, that and it, it, essentially the gospel as they were teaching it was true. And, and so I ended up getting baptized. But I, I need to also say, too, that because of reading Fawn Brody's No Man Knows My History before joining the church, I became very uh, intrigued by the counter-argument right off the bat. And uh, I spent a lot of time reading uh, what many in the church would call anti-Mormon sources, but I would just say the those who are critical of the church or those who take a different conclusion than what the church poses. And so I became very aware of the of some of the troublesome issues in the church. And so I've kind of spent my time uh, early on uh, trying to become well aware of what those issues were and trying to be familiar with them. Well, then, when I was listening to you uh, tell the story on, a, on another show you're on, um, just on the really good side, the, the lady who kind of brought you to the church is, is still your wife, correct? Yep. So the young lady that I was dating who asked me out on a date, uh, we got married in 1997 and have been together since. 
Oh well, that that is really cool. So that's that's a a good happy part of the story for sure. Yep. So, so yeah. Bill, what was the reaction of your parents to your um, becoming a member of the LDS Church? Well, my mom not being religious and my dad not being religious, I thought that they would react in a positive way just seeing these positive changes in my life. That I I used to sell drugs, I used to drink a lot, I used to party quite a bit in high school, and all of a sudden I had essentially tossed all those things away and was trying to to be a um, just a better behaved I guess son to them uh-huh. and yet the response from them was the opposite they they ended up kicking me out of my home oh no uh, yeah well that's that's life and <laughs> that's happened and I get it too from my mom's perspective I was spending a lot of time with the church I was spending a lot of time uh, doing things with other people in the church and so I wasn't home as much and I wasn't there to to maybe help them out as much because I had found this new community that I, I was doing service projects and helping to to do things with, with others who needed help. And in some ways, I think that that loss for my mom really kind of struck her at her heart. And and she just felt like, okay, you know, if you're not going to be here much and, and you found these guys, then out you have to go. To this day, maybe to take it one step further, when my wife and I got married in the LDS church, most Mormons choose to get married in the temples, and in the temples only what the church deems worthy, active Latter-day Saints uh, can be in attendance in those ordinances. And so my mom and dad couldn't go, and, and to this day I know that still uh, aches uh, for my mom, that that's really something that she looks back on and really still doesn't understand. And to be honest, I don't know that I can ever find the right words to put it in to, to make that sound like it was the right thing to do uh, in her eyes, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can see uh, people being critical of you, to, you know, by asking um, why you would continue with an organization that would ban your parents from your wedding. Yeah, I mean, you look at that kind of uh, commitment that the church asks of its members, and yet often throughout religious history, religions tend to be um, exclusionary in some aspects, mm-hmm. and Mormonism certainly has its part of that. I think in many ways Mormonism is very accepting and reaching out and trying to, uh, in some ways, almost be universalistic in its approach. But when it comes to, to marriage in the temple, uh, Mormonism at its core is in some ways exclusion exclusionistic. And, and to some extent, it would probably claim that it isn't. It would say that anybody has the ability to accept the truth that it's teaching and to participate in those ordinances. But in reality, that's kind of a, a tough extreme to ask of everyone. Mm-hmm. Now, did you do a, a mission? I didn't. When I was when I joined the church, I uh, went into the bishop's office. The bishop is the local ecclesiastical leader in a congregation, mm-hmm. and he asked me to come in and sit down with him. And he asked me if I wanted to go and. I kind of hem-hawed about it, and eventually I just said, no, I really don't know that You know, now's a good time. And he didn't press the issue any further, but to be honest, as I look back on my life, there's very few things I regret, but not serving a mission is one of those. Okay. Oh, wow. Oh, that's, that's interesting, yeah. Mm-hmm. When did you decide to start your podcast, and, and why? When I was – I actually served as a bishop the – Again, the local ecclesiastical leader of a congregation. And bishops generally serve for about five years in, in the ward. And the ward is the name for the, the local group of members that meet. Mm-hmm. And uh, about three years into being a, uh, a bishop, I ended up having kind of a, a faith crisis where, again, early on in my time in the church, I was very aware of the historical problems and issues but being a young man, I had formed a very simplistic way of kind of answering those questions. And as I became older and more mature, I, I had learned from some experiences and things, I began to realize that the world wasn't black and white, and that the history of the church wasn't black and white, and that the simple answers really didn't work anymore. And I also became somewhat troubled by the idea, and I don't think this is a a sole thing with Mormonism, I think that we could find this in other faiths as well, but that Mormonism does, as an institution, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, to some extent, tries to keep some of the more problematic historical issues out of the general member's sight. 
they would rather focus on the principles of the gospel rather than delve into having deep discussions of historical issues. Mm-hmm. And so I became aware that in some sense, and I don't mean like the church hit it, but that in some sense the church didn't trust me enough to talk to me about uh, its history. Mm-hmm. And combining that with the issues themselves, I just had this moment where I woke up one day and said, man, I don't, I don't believe anymore. And as I began to put that back together, I realized that there's very few people in any congregation that are equipped to help people understand how we develop and transition through stages of life and through religious faith stages. And so I thought, okay, I know there's lots of people out there who are saying negative things. I know that there's lots of people out there who uh, try to combat Mormonism from a, from a critical point of view. And I thought there's nobody out there who's tackling this issue seriously, but also leading with faith and trying to encourage people to, yes, there's problems. Yes, some of these are don't have great answers, but there are ways to work through this so that you're still believing and still practicing and still living what I would call a faithful life. Mm-hmm. Now, what are, what are some of the things that you're that caused you to have the crisis of faith? If you could be more specific, uh, I'm assuming you're talking about some of the. You said something about the historical things. Um, so, what what are we talking about here? Well, in the church's narrative, the way we're taught the church's story, the missionaries are very quick. And again, we're talking about 19 and 20 year old kids most of the time, but. These young men would come into your, my home and they would teach me about how Joseph Smith translated the Book of Mormon using these special instruments that were buried with these gold plates. And what we find out through the history is that Joseph actually translates using a seer stone by placing a stone in a hat. The, the church for a long time focused very much on one of our, our scriptural works that we use is called the Book of Abraham. And the story is that Joseph gets these Egyptian papyri, and he essentially, because he's a prophet, because he is able to uh, do these divine translations, that he translates this Egyptian papyri into what we have today as the Book of Abraham. Except that historical analysis and scholarship shows that there's some problems with that that simple view that there's this papyri and that it has the Book of Abraham on it and that Joseph translates it, and, and hence we have this scriptural record. And so the church even itself today is kind of backed away from saying that there's this direct connection. And that's not the way it was taught to me, and it was not the way I think it's taught to most members. The other thing, too, just the polygamy issue. Very few members of the church knew prior to about a month ago that Joseph Smith was married to a 14-year-old girl, that he was um, married or sealed to the women who were already married to other men, Uh that some of his marriages didn't have the knowledge or consent of his first wife. And so a lot of the history within the faith is um, deeply flawed as we look at it today, and it it could be very troubling. And the church tends to kind of steer away from that. And again, up until recently, within the last month, the church has released several essays. Many of these have been reported on by the New York Times and other uh, news outlets so the church is essentially coming forward and saying, look, we need to be more transparent. But up until, say, a year ago, these things would have been unknown to the general membership. Mm-hmm. Even though they're, they've been available, that information has been available to anybody who cares to look into it for decades, right? Right. The, the, the information is out there. But to find that information, you had to go away from official church sources in most, uh, in most instances. Right. So, so the church would, it certainly wasn't hiding it. It wasn't like they had a vault and everything was locked in it and nobody could see it. But rather the church itself wasn't going to talk about them. If you wanted to know about it, first you had to know there was an issue and then you had to know where to look and where you found it was usually on the webpage of a critic who then pointed you back to maybe LDS sources from like the 1800s. But the church itself on its website, its manuals, its lesson materials, very few of the deeper issues were were spoken about. And the ones that were were really kind of glossed over in kind of a one-sentence or two-sentence synopsis that really doesn't even kind of hit the mark on those issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's interesting to me that 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 would be so... um 
controversial within the church for a couple of reasons. One is that if you just look at the Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament, they are full of people that are the heroes of the story, righteous people who make mistakes, who do stupid things, who do horrible things, but yet they're considered faithful Jews or faithful Christians. So the fact that Joseph Smith or any of the other church fathers had done things that were questionable shouldn't deter anybody from thinking any less of the religion itself. And the other thing is, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but my understanding is that in the LDS church, um, one of the basic beliefs is that uh, revelation is sort of an ongoing thing, you know, the, like the church changed its stance on black people uh, based on the principle that um, there was an imperfect understanding and now, you know, a, a, a new revelation has come to light. Yeah, you know, I whenever I'm talking to somebody who's having a hard time in the church, I I make an effort to talk about that idea that prophets or anybody really within, you know, that's a human being, we all have flaws and weaknesses and we're all fallible and that the church on a kind of a surface level talks about this idea that uh, that leaders are fallible and that we make mistakes. But we kind of have ingrained in our culture, if you were to go to an LDS church on Sunday and sit through the three-hour block, you would quickly realize that it is not, it's not a comfortable thing to have an open discussion about the, the mistakes that prophets from scriptures have made, and specifically prophets in what we would call this dispensation or essentially in the church. And so there's this idea that Joseph Smith was near perfect. Now, it, it's just one of those things where members of the church very rarely will be in the context where they're allowed to talk about those imperfections. And some of our, our songs, some of the scriptures that we use talk about uh, Joseph having done more for the salvation of mankind than anyone with the exception of Jesus. And so in some ways, Joseph Smith and other prophets are kind of put on this this pedestal Mm-hmm. where we're really not allowed to talk about their imperfections. And by not having that conversation, I think the general membership walks away with an incorrect perspective of what a prophet really is. And and so I agree with you. The scriptures are full of the mistakes, right? I mean, Moses kills an Egyptian. Noah's a drunk. Uh, Jonah doesn't want to carry through with, uh, with his divine assignment to go preach to the people of Nineveh. Mm-hmm. And yet, very rarely are we having those kinds of conversations more, you know, almost to a T. Every conversation is putting these prophets on pedestals and talking about how they did everything God wanted them to do and, and they fulfilled their mission. And there just isn't that room to have that kind of a complex conversation. Well, that's, that's similar to other forms of Christianity, of course. <laughs> they try to ignore that. I, I always make the joke about what would David do, since I was named after him, and he did a lot of nasty things. Yeah. <laughs> that just, I didn't learn in Sunday school. <laughs> right, and I, even today in work, I work with a, predominantly a group of Catholics, and, uh, I asked the one lady today, I said, how do you feel about the inquisitions that happened long ago within your faith, where they essentially killed anybody or chased them down anywhere, tried to put them in prison if they if they tried to translate scripture into an English language or if they tried to recognize that the church had gone astray on some point. And the lady I was talking to was completely oblivious to that idea. She had never been told that. And so I just think that religion in general tries to sidestep its troublesome aspects. But in the Internet age that we're in, People are going to learn these things one way or the other, and it should come from the institution itself, because if it doesn't, then all of a sudden there's going to feel like a breach of trust. Sure. Well, well, as kind of a representative of the institution, I'd, I'd love to hear how you can how you can make yourself believe that the whole uh, golden tablets and the magic stone story is actually fact. Because you kind of have to believe that to, to be a true Mormon, correct? Right, you do have to believe that. And I, right. and I wouldn't take the stance that I would convince anybody that's a true fact. And I'm not even going to say that I'm 100% certain it's a true fact. What I would say is that Mormonism, at least in my own mind as I've sat and gone back and forth on each of the issues, I almost have like two baskets. And in one basket, I have all the problems, all the contradictions, all the things where the best 
most logical answer is the one that the critic gives. But in that basket, I also recognize that sometimes in life, the most logical answer isn't always the one that ends up being the right answer, that sometimes there are other explanations for why things happen. But in this other basket, I have what I would call my evidences. And so there are things that I see uh, either in ways that I've applied gospel principles that have blessed me. Uh, perhaps they are things I see in the Book of Mormon that evidence to me that it is of a historical origin. And so having these two baskets, one of things that I absolutely validate as being a problem for the historicity of the, the restored gospel or the, or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and for God for that matter, and then in the other basket, having these evidences, I kind of come down in this place where I say faith for me is a choice. I have enough evidence on both sides that I can go either way. And I choose to have hope and faith in the truth of the gospel to, to essentially be faithful to that message. But I realize that both conclusions are valid and reasonable. And so that's kind of how I... Uh, how I navigate that, if that makes sense. Yeah, it makes a little sense. It's it's almost the pure definition of trying to resolve cognitive dissonance. <laughs> sure. um, so, it's, which is exactly what you're doing. You found a, a not a unique way of doing it. Actually, that's that's mm-hmm. a very common way of doing it. Uh, another one of the the real hot buttons for for me, and I'm I'm sure for John as well, is the the church's view on evolution. Um, and I, I read that you actually changed your view on this some time ago, but it seems like the church itself still kind of waffles on this issue. So can you kind of tell me what your current thoughts are on that and, and what you believe the church's stances are? Sure. There's been several leaders in the church's history who have spoken out adamantly against evolution, and they've done so very authoritatively. Uh, Bruce R. McConkie uh, did so both through his writings and in some talks. His father-in-law, Joseph Fielding Smith, who at one time was the uh, prophet and president of the church, also uh, wrote in some books of his that that evolution was false. But what very few Latter-day Saints recognize is that while these two men were very publicly and authoritatively stating that, there were other leaders of equal rank who were very comfortable with evolution. And so there were uh, leaders such as James Talmadge, John Widstow, B.H. Roberts, and one of the other presidents of the church, David O. McKay, who seemed to be very comfortable with evolution. And so while we do have some authoritative statements against it, there really is no official doctrine from the church. If you were to, if you were to write the LDS church uh, through their PR department and send them an email and say, what is the church's official view on evolution? I, I almost would guarantee the church would come back that it has no official view on evolution. In fact, they've written two f- letters from the first presidency, which are essentially as high up and as authoritative as you can get. And both letters, if I'm not mistaken, essentially say that they're going to leave that up to the realm of science and the church has no official position. And so, when I was younger, having only been aware of those who were speaking the loudest, as I delved back into what was said by more than just those two uh, leaders within my faith, I realized that there was more room to see that than just to see it through their uh, their lens of, of seeing evolution as a heresy. And so I've, I've got no problem with evolution. In fact, I see very much of the, the fall in the garden uh, story from Genesis as figurative or allegorical. Um, I'm very comfortable kind of not having to take everything that the scripture says as 100% literal. Now, that doesn't apply to everything. There, I think there are some aspects of the gospel that that there really is no way to still believe and write things off as, as figurative. But I think much of the gospel, more so than we think, uh, can that can be done with. Well, that, that's very refreshing to hear. <laughs> um, I, I, I really appreciate that, especially the, the whole fall of, of Adam thing. It's, I, I've even had a hard time talking to true believer uh, Catholics who say they believe in evolution. However, basically the whole faith is based on the fall of Adam and original sin. And they've never been able to give me a, a really good example of how you can still believe in original sin and not believe in Adam as being the original human. Right. In fact, I would even share maybe my view. 
Um, I'm completely okay with evolution. I'm completely okay with there being before um, before us as humanoids as we as we know ourselves that there were these other uh, species before that, and that at some point God decided, okay, let me go ahead now and place my spirit children into into bodies. And so the very first beings, perhaps maybe they were named Adam and Eve by God, but that they were placed in in essentially a species that was already here. So when two babies were born, all of a sudden the spirit that they have within them is one is Adam and the other is Eve. And from that point forward, God is continuing to place his spirit children uh, in humanoids. And so I'm okay with evolution. I'm okay with seeing the the garden or the fall uh, as we teach within our faith, as really symbolic of what Mormons believe as the pre-mortal life. It's, I think it's one of the unique views that uh, Mormons take, is that we existed before we came here, that we lived with Heavenly Father, that he gave us an opportunity to learn as much as we could from him, but that to progress further we had to come to earth and, and take a body uh, and experience life away from his presence where we could choose essentially good from evil, or essentially choose to try and be better or to be willing to make an effort to improve. And very much of the way that the garden in the fall are described, I think very closely relate to what life would have been like or what Latter-day Saints describe the pre-mortal life like, and then essentially the fall being that fall from that sphere to this earth. And so I, le- I see a lot of room in Mormonism to kind of take a different stance than maybe what the the traditional view has been uh, over the last 200 years. You know, we, we were talking earlier about the um, the golden plates and the uh, seer stone and all that stuff. And of course, according to uh, Mormon lore, the plates have conveniently disappeared <laughs> right. so to speak right. so you have to kind of just decide whether or not you're going to believe that the plates existed or not or you know or that joseph smith was able to translate these plates using whatever methods um and you know of course nobody there's no evidence one way or the other to indicate whether there was an adam or eve you know as an individual persons but there are things in the Book of Mormon that are pretty much proven to be not possible. For example, um, there are technologies and flora and fauna mentioned in the Book of Mormon that we know did not exist it, in the, at those times that the stories supposedly take place. They mention steel and horses and things like that. Um, you know, and also there's basically no archaeological evidence that any of the things that are claimed in the Book of Mormon took place. Uh, The genetic evidence is that there is no relationship between Native Americans and modern-day Jews, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So when those sorts of things come to light, how do you square that with the claims that are made in the Book of Mormon? Right, so... I absolutely agree with you that the Book of Mormon has what we call lots of anachronisms, things that are in the text that seemingly don't belong there based on our understanding of archaeology, historical scholarship. If you were to go back to the year 1830 when the Book of Mormon was published, and you were to make a list based on what we knew then of all the things that would constitute an anachronism in the Book of Mormon, and compare it with that list today – Several of those things have been knocked off the list. I'll just give one example. Just the idea that Joseph found metal plates with writing on them would have been, I think, silly to to people of his time. And yet now we've got, I think, at least a dozen instances where uh, metal plates have been used as a way to preserve writing uh, with uh, transcriptions and things on them. And I think many of the anachronism, not all, and you mean, certainly... You mean from North America? Um, I think there's been some even found from North America or Central America. I think a lot of these are also found over in uh, in Europe as well and, and in places like Jerusalem and, and mm-hmm. other societies outside of America. But if you look at the list of total anachronisms, many of those have come off the list. Uh, 
I don't have a list in front of me, but I just mm-hmm. I know offhand that several of those things have come off. There's still a bunch on there. There's still I would say maybe half or a third of those things that still seem to be uh, complete anachronistic in nature, and they don't fit. And I think apologists in the past have tried to take the view that okay maybe a horse is actually a wild taper, and uh, and some really silly things that I think just don't hold up. I think the the best thing for us to do is just realize over time some of those have come off and to essentially make it a matter of faith and just sit and wait and hope that that more of those do. Um, you talked about the DNA, for instance. Mm-hmm. I think early on the church took a very um, formal perspective that all of the Native Americans, and even extended that to the Polynesians and, and other islanders, that they were part of this uh, group that make up the beginning people of the Book of Mormon. But scholars today take the approach, and the church itself has even taken this approach, because nowhere in our history do we have a spot where God comes down and says, okay, all of the Native Americans are are connected to this original group who came over that make up the, the initial family of the Book of Mormon. The church today takes the stance that it more than likely would have been uh, other people here when that group arrived, and that they would have been, by and far, a small minority amongst a large population. And so when we look at it from that perspective, the DNA issue becomes less uh, of a problem. Um, But again, what we have to deal with is the fact that for a long time the church taught a different narrative or felt like that was the more appropriate appropriate narrative to teach. Mm -hmm. But it sounds like, uh, you know, from a from a scientific perspective or a critical historical perspective, the simplest explanation, you know, is if we find no genetic link between any of the known Native American groups to Semitic peoples, but we sh- we show strong connection of, of Native American groups to uh, groups that are traditionally associated with um, um, Eastern Asia. The simplest explanation is that the Bering Land Bridge, you know, migration of uh, the Polynesians and so forth, are almost the sole um, factor in in the populating of the uh, of the Americas, and that the Book of Mormon is just mistaken that right. there is no Jewish component. But so, um, you know, and the fact that. Archaeologists obviously haven't overturned literally every stone in the continent of North America, and, and until that happens, it would seem that Mormons can conveniently say, well, that city still could exist because they haven't found it yet. Yeah, and I would say this. I would agree with you that the argument is there that the majority of Native Americans came over uh, on the land bridge from Asia and I don't think Mormon theology has any problem accepting that. In fact, I accept that as uh, as truth. My, What I would throw out there is to say that if we accept the idea that there was already a population here in Central America or North America, wherever in the Americas that the Book of Mormon takes place, mm-hmm. that if a small group of people with uh, with Jewish DNA come over, then all of a sudden we don't need to find their DNA to be primarily, uh, the primary DNA found, um, the primary genes found in, in the major, I guess, population of Native right. Americans. They've done studies where they've found that several Indian groups, several Native American groups do have, um, I forget what it's called, if it's called the X helpo group or Y helpo group, uh, DNA in them. One of them, I think, is the Fox Indians. And so there are a couple of tribes that do have DNA that goes to to European lineage. And so again, Mormons would essentially say, look, there's at least some uh, data out there that would justify that at least on a small portion of the Native American population, there is this European DNA. And even if that DNA was not found at all, if we're talking about a group of 15 people landing in an area with tens of thousands, perhaps a hundred thousand, maybe a couple hundred thousand Native Americans that were here prior to uh, the Book of Mormon people coming over, I think it would be pretty fair to say that much, if not all, that DNA would essentially disappear with the larger group. Mm -hmm. Now, let me ask you this. Sure. If the the research had shown that there was a significant 
similarity in Native American DNA and Jewish DNA, uh, would the church say, well, that doesn't really mean anything? Well, no, because obviously they would use that as an evidence, right? <laughs> right. I mean, we would right. have magazine articles and books written on it, and uh, right. we would trumpet so there's no the rationalizing. The there's no rationalizing when it comes down on your side, but it sounds right. like there's lots of rationalizing when things don't agree. Right, when it works in your favor, then you, you hold it up as evidence, and uh, when it doesn't work in your favor, you come up with a plausible reason why that shouldn't be there. Well, right, which is kind of the pure, you know, apologistic um, argument that we read in Answers in Genesis every day. And, um, so I hate to tell you, you're not convincing me too much, um, but but that's, you know, that's fine. And I, I, I do like your, your bucket analogy, your basket analogy, and um, some of those certainly have to go in the other basket. And I would add this, too. Um, I, I, I know a lot of apologists within our church. I don't call myself an apologist. I think apologists, to some extent, within the church, they, they really struggle to validate any of the concerns and they try to come up with a a answer to every question and I try to take a different approach where I'm happy to acknowledge and validate that some of the questions simply don't have good answers and and that's perfectly okay with me there's enough again in that positive bucket that I see almost kind of like a balance in effect and and that balance may lean one way or the other but because there's at least some things on each side to believe or not to believe is still, at least to some extent, a choice for me. Oh, sure. No, I totally understand that. One of the, the things that the, the Mormon Church does that really affects us directly is its stance on homosexuality. Uh, neither one of us are homosexuals, but... Um, not that there's anything wrong with that. Right. Not at all. And, matter of fact, atheists are probably the only group um, that are hated more uh, than homosexuals. You know, try to get an atheist as a uh, uh, politician, and it's not going to happen, but you get a couple homosexuals at least. But the, the church has gotten a bit better about this over the years, and, in fact, it actually allows homosexual members... To, you can you can be a, a homosexual Mormon as long as you don't have sex. Um, so I just kind of wanted to to ask your opinion on that, and I know you've talked about it before. So kind of give us how you respond to the whole homosexual question. Right. The, the church's doctrine is that marriage, in God's eyes, is only appropriate between uh, a man and a woman. And the church has gone out of its way to talk about between one man and one woman, which I find somewhat ironic because if we go back. You know, 170 years ago, we have a church that's practicing polygamy, uh, which is, in a sense, is kind of violating its own theology of saying that marriage is between one man and one woman. But with that said, and I don't want to mess with the, I don't want to comment much on the doctrine because that's obviously the stance the church has taken, and and that's where they are. But I do think on policies and. In different ways in which we as a community interact with others, whether outside of our faith or those within our faith who who are different than what we in the past have seen kind of as the norm. I know that I've interviewed uh, three different individuals. The first one I interviewed uh, was a, a lady by the name of uh, Wendy Montgomery who, had a, who has a son uh, who's gay. And some of the things that, that happened to him at church in terms of how he was treated – uh, simply were appalling. Uh, members would refuse the sacrament from him because he was a priesthood holder. He was passing the bread and the water to the members of his local ward. And because he was gay, he wasn't being intimate in any way. He was completely worthy in terms of how the church sees worthiness. And yet some members were refusing the sacrament from him simply because of that. And and to me, that's appalling. Um, I interviewed a gentleman by the name of Mitch Main, who is a gay Mormon, um, he has held leadership callings in the church, but obviously as part of that uh, requisite is that he was not a practicing homosexual. But at least he's opened our eyes to the idea that just because someone is gay or um, is homosexual, that that alone doesn't, doesn't change their standing in the faith. The, the last person I interviewed was a gentleman by the name of Kevin Klusterman, and Kevin... Uh, his, was served as a bishop, and while he was serving as a bishop, became an LGBT ally and spoke uh, spoke essentially to that effect. And he was under some some heat from the church for doing so. Um, and he's taken, I guess, some some bumps along the road for for doing that. But but I think what we have to come to grips with is that in terms of our policies, 
in terms of the way we interact with the with members of the church who are gay, we've got to find better ways to include them, to allow them to participate to at least some extent. Otherwise, all they're doing is they're they're leaving the church. Um, we have some parents, unfortunately, who feel like they need to defend the church against their child and have kicked their children out of the home out of their homes. And some of these things are just absolutely atrocious. And it's not that the church teaches that. The church doesn't teach you to kick your, your gay child out of, out of your house. But because the church isn't necessarily standing up and talking about the issue publicly, publicly and giving a, a productive, positive way to handle uh, this issue, parents sometimes feel like they need to show their kid tough love. And I think we just have to do a much better job of being more vocal and trying to show that there's other ways to, to both – Protect and stand up for your religious faith, but also not do it to the extent that you're causing harm or marginalizing someone else. So are you opposed to the efforts that the church is engaged in to affect the law regarding marriage equality? For example, the, you know, the Mormon church famously or infamously spent a lot of money and effort in California to try to prevent gay marriage from being legal. Yeah, I'm not comfortable with the church going outside of itself to force or compel its values on somebody else. And I would be honest, I don't think the church today is any longer comfortable with what it did with Prop 8. Um, I know that Marlon Jensen, who there's the tier of leadership, right? We have a president or prophet in our church. He has counselors. Mm -hmm. There's a tier underneath him, which we consider to be the 12 apostles. And then there's a tier underneath that called the 70. Elder mm -hmm. Jensen was a member of the 70, and I believe, if I'm not mistaken, he went back out to California after it was all over, essentially representing the church, although he said that, that he, he couldn't really speak for the church, although I think if we're going to be technical, I think that's what he was doing, and <laughs> essentially apologized to the people for the hurt that Prop 8 had caused. And, and so I think the church learned a lesson from that, and I don't think we'll ever see that happen again. Uh, I could be wrong, but I think the church learned a valuable lesson that, that when we step outside the bounds of imposing our uh, values or beliefs on someone else, we're kind of getting ourselves into a, a, a place that's not going to probably work out to our advantage. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that because – it's been endless fodder for us on this podcast for since the beginning um, that you know we we really don't have a problem with people having their own personal religious beliefs and we don't have a problem with churches um, imposing their religious beliefs on their own members voluntarily but where we do have a problem is when churches start to tinker with the political system or um, or even you know try to put pressure on uh, society outside of the church to impose yeah. their religious beliefs. Yeah, and I and I totally agree with that. Um, I do think the church reserves the right to to kind of stand up for moral issues, but and again, this is just me speaking. I don't speak mm -hmm. for the church. Mm -hmm. I'm not a representative of the church. But for me speaking, I think it gets kind of iffy when we start to to take up those initiatives in ways that marginalize or isolate people. Uh, outside of of any one faith institution. Well, that is that is very good to hear, and I guess just kind of the last thing I'd I'd like your opinion on because it's a complete showstopper for me <laughs> is the ban on caffeine and alcohol. I tell you, <laughs> there is there is no way you lose me at the at go from there. <laughs> you know, I uh, like I told you at the beginning of the interview, I drank a lot uh, in high school. I partied a lot. When I was considering a change to, to convert over to Mormonism, uh, it was no problem at all for me to give up the alcohol in the tobacco and the drugs that I was using. The hardest thing for me was iced tea, which, uh, which may make no sense at all, but my dad used to set a pot of water on the stove at night and boil it, and before he went to bed, he would throw 20 tea bags in, and then when he got up in the morning... After it sat all night, uh, he would add like four or five big cups of sugar to the thing. Oh, God. <laughs> and I just love this stuff. And even after I got baptized, I would pour this stuff in my mouth, swish it around, and then spit it out. Uh, so I, I can totally understand where you're coming from, <laughs> right? Cheat. It was cheating. And I did that for a few weeks, and I realized that that was cheating. But, uh, but I will say that, yeah, you're right. I mean, 
Mormonism has a, a moral code to it that asks things that I don't think any other faith requires, although there are faiths out there that have health codes. Um, but to some extent, Mormonism is different. And Joseph Smith, when he gave the revelation, I think it was in like 1834, 1835 in, in Kirtland, Ohio, uh, on what we call the Word of Wisdom, where these substances were banned. The original revelation really wasn't a ban to begin with. It was simply a Word of Wisdom, and it was a suggestion and it wasn't until Brigham Young, uh, and then later on, I believe George Albert Smith, uh, a later president and prophet of the church, that really formalized this health code in a way that it became commandment and in uh, a necessary rule for one to both get baptized and then later on for one to go to the temple. So, you're right. If uh, if if you like your coffee, your your alcohol, if you like to smoke. Um, that's going to be a really tough uh, change to make if you decide you want to join Mormonism. Well, hey, I wanted to thank you a lot for coming on. If, if Go ahead and, and plug your website, and of course we'll do that in the show notes as well, but let people know um, how they can get a hold of you and, and your podcast uh, name and URL. Sure. The podcast is called Mormon Discussion Leading with Faith, and it is found at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. And there's just, essentially, I do interviews with authors, I do interviews with uh, scholars in the church, and I try to tackle the tough issues, take the things that the critics say, hey, this just doesn't add up, and, and validate that to some extent, but then also show members of the church how they can can essentially work through those things, leaving enough room for faith and belief that it's still a choice for them. Well, I think that's fantastic, and I really want to thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you to, to both of you, David and John. appreciate uh, you having yeah. me on. Thanks a lot. That was Bill Reel, the host of the Mormon Discussion Podcast. And uh, as he said, you can find him at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. So do you have any announcements? I am announcement-free this week. Okay. I've just got a couple of minor things. Uh you know, we're still in the holiday season, and I just wanted to remind our listeners that if you shop online, that you are welcome to do so through American Freethought. If you go to our website and click on the link called Shop, um, you can go through to Amazon.com and buy anything you want, and some tiny portion of that will uh, go toward help helping us continue with the podcast and the website. Good to know. Yes, and then just another quick thing. I, I got a copy of a book in the mail uh, the other day. Uh, it's called Atheist Awakening, Secular Activism and Community in America. And it's written by Richard Semino and Christopher Smith. And uh, the discussion says, um, Surveys over the last 20 years have seen an ever-growing number of Americans disclaim religious affiliation and instead check the nun box. In the first sociological exploration of organized secularism in America, Richard Semino and Christopher Smith show how one segment of these nuns have created a new cohesive atheist identity through activism and the creation of communities. So, uh, I have not read this book yet, and it's uh, it's not very long. It's less than 200 pages, but what caught my eye was uh, a lot of times when I get these books, I'll flip in the back and just kind of look through the index and the references just to see, you know, kind of where their sources are. And uh, on this one, I was flipping through the references, and I happened to see Snyder, comma, Chris. Oh, really? Five Questions with Sam Harris. From okay. The, and this was uh, years ago, I uh, contributed a, some articles to a local newsletter called The Diamondist. Yeah, sure. And... Uh, uh, I did several of these things that were just called five questions with, and uh, one of them was with Sam Harris. So, and I haven't been able to get him on um, email or the phone since then. <laughs> I guess he's just gotten much busier. This is back in 2005. Um, so, uh, somewhere in this book, there's a reference to something that was said in that uh, brief interview. Oh, that's fantastic. I, I didn't get that book. Usually whatever you get shows up in my mailbox eventually. But. Yeah, I may have to put this on my reading list because the, the, the references seem particularly good. <laughs> yeah. So, <it's> yeah. <laughs> oh, that's Anyway, funny. but it's funny. Nobody ever contacted me uh, about this. I mean, there have been occasions when 
people have wanted to use something that I wrote in a, a book or an article, and um, as far as I know, almost always they contact me. Uh, but in this case, I never heard anything from these people, and uh, they just used it. So, <laughs> well, there, and, look but, at you, you're quoted. And but actually, I think that interview is on American Freethought somewhere. Uh, if you go to the American Freethought website and do a, a search for um, Sam Harris or Five Questions with Sam Harris, you can probably find that interview because I think I reprinted it on the on the blog. Ah, well, there you go. Well, that's it for this podcast. Don't forget to visit us at AmericanFreeThought.com. Thanks for listening.